This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, I speak with Hank Wesselman. Hank has a PhD in anthropology from the University of California at Berkeley, and for many years studied the origin of the human species in the Rift Valley in East Africa. He is also a student and teacher of shamanic practices, and is the co-author, along with Sandra Ingerman, of a new Sounds True book entitled Awakening to the Spirit World. The Shamanic Path of Direct Revelation. I spoke with Hank about what he calls the coming Great Age, in which direct spiritual revelation will take precedence over any type of organized religion, and the important role that shamans hold today in connecting the dream world with present reality. Here's my conversation, a very eye-opening conversation, with Hank Wesselman. Welcome, Hank, to Insights at the Edge. Well, thank you, Tammy. Nice to hear your voice. Likewise. As someone who is a trained anthropologist and also a shamanic practitioner, it seems that you really live in both worlds, so to speak. The world of the academic who has studied indigenous cultures, but also the world of, of someone who themselves has experiences as a shamanic practitioner. And what I'd love to know to start is, are there ways in which these two worlds have come into conflict for you? Or have you always found a way to find harmony between both of these different perspectives? Well, this is an interesting question. Um, I did my doctoral work in anthropology at UC Berkeley. And during this time, I was drawn into connection with a very well-known professor of anthropology named F. Clark Hull, who was at that time director of the OMO research expedition to southwestern Ethiopia. This is back in the early 1970s, between 1970 and 1976, roughly speaking. And I was invited to go into the field with him, where I found myself part of a a research group, maybe uh, 15, 20 scientists with about 35 Africans working for us from the Wakamba tribe. And I found myself rubbing elbows with people like Louis Leakey and his wife Mary, and of course their son Richard and his wife Meath Leakey, and Don Johansson, who would later discover Lucy. He and I were graduate students under the same man. And it was out there in the Rift Valley I would be living in a tented safari camp for sometimes three months at a time, doing survey work and paleontology and archaeology and geology, you know, stuff like that. It was out there in the Rift Valley that I began to have these very strange dream-like experiences. Sometimes they happened at night when I was supposedly asleep, but somehow wide awake at the same time. And sometimes they happened in the daytime when I was very much awake. At that time, I had no idea what these experiences were. But I made cryptic notes to myself in my field journals. You know, this is not the sort of thing that you share with your academic colleagues. Um, I, I sometimes affectionately think of this group of, of scientists I work with as the Paleo Mafia. 
hmm. because of the way they treat each other. You know, very, very intense competition, strong personalities, uh, driven people who are obsessed by their work, that sort of thing. Well, <clears throat> I've been working with these people for almost 40 years, and I'm still working with them today. So on the one hand, here's Hank Wesselman, the scientist, doing very hardcore scientific work at the highest level of my field. And on the other hand, there is an aspect of myself, a deep aspect of myself, some might call it the subconscious, which began to wake up out there in the desert, and I began to have these strange visionary experiences which drew me into an entirely new phase of my life. Now, initially, I felt some conflict about this. But then, you know, I just kind of shut all that visionary stuff down for about 10 years and worked, you know, very hard on my science, got my Ph.D., uh, ended up living on my small farm in Hawaii with my wife and first daughter at that time. And suddenly the subconscious <laughs> decided to open up again, and I began to have these visionary experiences, you know, big time once again, an ongoing continuum. Just to ask so I can really understand, visionary experiences, like what are, were you actually experiencing? Well, for example, if I were to give you a, a rundown of it, I would find myself about 4 o'clock in the morning, sometimes on the heels of a joyous marital encounter. I would find my physical body suddenly invaded by these feelings of force or energy or power, uh, kind of like this incredible pressure in which I could just barely breathe. And my mind, of course, would click awake immediately, and I would find myself drawn out of my body along this strange filamentous spiderweb-like grid or net. And in the visions that happened in Hawaii, I found my conscious awareness drawn into connection with the mind of another man. And during these connections, it was as though I was him. And to make matters really sticky, he doesn't live in this slice of time. He lives in the future. Now, when this experience began to happen for me, I, be I thought I was going into a psychological crisis. Mm -hmm. And I, cons I seriously considered turning myself over to the psychiatrists. Had I done so, I think the entire uh, initiatory experience would have been shut down. But I decided to go for it because I knew, having lived in Africa as long as I had, this actually began in the Peace Corps among the Yoruba people back in 1964. I knew that among traditional people, there are individuals called shamans, and that shamans claim to be able to access such visionary experiences voluntarily. And so I knew something about shamans as an anthropologist, and I suspected that I was one of those individuals who had some sort of program on my inner hard drive I'm talking about my DNA. I'm talking about my genetic code. And when that program was clicked with the right mouse, uh, I would have these visionary experiences. Now, those of our listeners out there in the world at large, most of us are aware, those of us who are visionaries, there are three great gateways to transcendent experience. Meditation is one of them. And shamanic journey work, which we're going to talk about, is a form of meditation. The second is Tantra. This is something I discovered uh, through direct experience with my wife. And the third is trauma. Hmm. 
very often people who've had a terribly traumatic experience will find themselves precipitated into a visionary state, either through a near-death experience or through an out-of-body experience, which are essentially experientially the same, in my opinion, in which they find themselves in the land of visions and spirits. And, you know, some of us are prepared for this experience, but most of us are not, because we don't live in a society in which direct experience with spirits is part of our everyday reality. So here I was, this scientist, all right, on one hand, doing high-powered science and publishing monographs and papers and scientific journals and going to conferences and so forth. On the other hand, here I was having these extraordinary visions. And so my response to this was to start to write this stuff up, like I would write up my field journals. Mm -hmm. And this stuff was eventually published in my first book, Spirit Walker, which came out from Bannum Books in 1995. Uh, the story of how I was drawn into the world of the shaman uh, and began to experience this world of magic and mystery and meaning through this perspective of the shaman rather than, <laughs> you know, a New Yorker who grew up on the Upper East Side of New York, which in fact I am. Now, Hank, I want to go back to the visionary experience itself, that you were drawn into the mind of a man who lived in the future. Now, was this is this yourself in the future? What time in the future? What did you experience in the future? Well, here we go. Um, this man is a man who lives somewhere on the western coast of North America, and he's a historian. When I was in connection with him for the first time, it was for about 18 hours of his time. And during this time, I discovered that his subconscious mind did not distinguish between directives from his conscious mind or from mine. So if I wanted to look at something and my curiosity was aroused, there would be kind of a, a, a microsecond of delay, and then he would walk over and look at it. If I wanted to know something, in other words, if I wanted to access his memories, this material would start to come up in his mind. And in some strange way, which is still very difficult to understand, I was able to perceive the meaning of it, the gist of it, uh, and understand what it was that he was uh, remembering. Through this process, uh, I might add that the first time this happened to me, I was in shock. I was, I was in real shock. My physical body was lying paralyzed next to my wife in Hawaii, and here my mind had been drawn into connection with this man who lived somewhere else in North America. What I discovered was that he lives in a slice of time roughly 5,000 years after the collapse of Western civilization. Now, he thinks of Western civilization as the American civilization, and the term that he uses for this period is the term the Great Age, because in his oral traditions of his own people, he's the descendant, for example, of a of a group of Hawaiian voyagers who arrived in a canoe, in a, in a fleet of double-hulled canoes from the islands, from the ancestral islands, roughly 130 years before I connected with him. And so he was the clerk, he's actually a clerk, who works for the director of one of these large land divisions which has been established around the edge of what he calls the Inland Sea. And if I've got this right, and I believe I do, the Inland Sea is actually the San Joaquin Valley, the Central Valley of California, which is filled with water and which is surrounded by landscape which affirms greenhouse warming's worst-case scenario. 
In other words, all the redwoods and oak trees are gone. You're taking me very far out here, Hank. We're going really far. I'm loving it. You can imagine what it was like for me. Almost not barely, actually. So we're 5,000 years into the future after the collapse of the Great Age. And when was the collapse of the Great Age? Well, he doesn't know. That's the problem. He knows that it was like 249 generations ago. That's how he measures time. And so if we measure that out with roughly 20 years per generation... It comes out to about 4,900 years, and that's how I've come up with that number. But he doesn't know, because they don't measure time the way we do. Uh, They measure time very much like the classic Hawaiians did, uh, through uh, chiefly families, through events, through periods of time under the influence of powerful men and women, this sort of thing. You know, it put me in 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 a hell of a quandary, because what happened when I came out of this experience for the first time is I was kind of like in shell shock. So I spent the best part of a month writing down everything I could remember about this strange dream. At that time, I considered them to be dreams. And then once I thought I had it down and had it right, I had another experience. And it happened in sequence as this man left his community and went on a long walk into the interior of the lost continent of America in search of answers as to what happened to us. This is the story of Spirit Walker, how this guy went on this long geographic quest and how he discovered the remnants of the once great civilization of North America living in western Nevada beyond the Sierra, what are today called the Sierra Mountains, and how these people are essentially living as foragers. You can't imagine my disappointment when I discovered this, you know, that the entire um, civilization state of the Western world was gone. Everything. Everything. I mean, these people have no knowledge of where metals come from, or glass, how glass is made, or pottery. You know, everything that they that they uh, use is virtually made of wood, or most of their tools are made of bamboo. I've included a lot of this information in Spirit Walker. Okay, now you said that originally you thought of these experiences, the I guess you could call it sort of mind merging with this man in the future as a dream, but that you implied you think about it differently now, that it it wasn't a dream. What was it? Well, at that time, I had no other way to think about them as beyond going beyond dreams, these extraordinarily vivid dreams. What I then began to discover through repeated uh, connections with this man over almost a 20-year period, what I discovered was that there are actually shamanic connections with the mind and soul of one of my descendants. You you touched on it in your question a bit ago. You know, is this actually me living in the future? And the answer is, yes, it is me living in the future, but it isn't Hank Wesselman. It's a man named Nainoa, and he has his own persona, his own, his own body, his own life experiences. But he and I are both sourced by the same oversoul, by the same higher self. So in a sense... The higher self, of which both of us is an embodied manifestation, serves as Grand Central Station, and there is a plan. And uncovering the layers of this plan and what this really was all about, this experience, is part of the story of the Spirit Walker trilogy, because eventually there were three books. There was Spirit Walker was the first, Medicine Maker was the second, and the third book was called Vision Seeker. So this is really, you know, now to 
hark back to what you said, the conflict between myself as an anthropologist, as a scientist, and myself as a shamanic practitioner. You know, this, this you know, was a very edgy, uh, very edgy experience for me back in the early 90s. And then when I decided to actually write this stuff up and publish it, um, my whole life changed, and I was drawn back into the world of the shaman. And I became a shamanic teacher and practitioner once again. I, you know, I have to throw in here that back in the early 80s, um, in response to those first experiences that I had out in Africa, I ended up in one of Michael Harner's workshops. Mm-hmm. And there I met a young woman from the CIIS in San Francisco who was a student there. I met this young woman named Sandra Engerman. And Sandra Engerman and I, uh, this is like almost 30 years ago, we were paired up in one of the exercises. And Sandra Ingerman, in doing a power animal retrieval for me, tapped into one of my imaginary friends from childhood and brought that imaginary friend back into my life. And what she didn't know is that I knew exactly who this was and that this individual had figured in one of my visionary experiences in Ethiopia 10 years before. Now, this impressed my inner scientist considerably, as you can imagine. And Sandra and I have been sort of on-again, off-again colleagues and friends ever since. I lost track of her for about, oh, maybe seven or eight years when I was having these these initiatory experiences with this man I know in Hawaii. But in the early 90s, I was a visiting professor at UC San Diego teaching upper division classes in human evolution, which is my specialty, and a class called Magic, Witchcraft, and Religion. And Sandy showed up in... San Diego to teach a workshop for the foundation, and so I, I remembered her, and so I went to the workshop to see who and what she'd become, and we became friends once again, and we've been friends ever since. We're sort of co-conspirators, if you could put it that way. Mm-hmm, I like that. <laughs> now, Hank, this conversation's bringing up a lot of questions for me, so let's see if I can get some of them out here. The, the first is that, do you believe, because of the messages you received from Nainoa, that that means that it's a fait accompli that Western civilization will be destroyed. And there'll be this time, 249 generations into the future, where this gentleman will live and have this spirit walk. Do you think that's factual? This is going to happen definitively. Now, that's a very good question. You know, people have asked me this question over and over over the last 17, 18 years since Spirit Walker came out. And what I usually say is this. I usually say that in my experience, and my experience as a teacher and practitioner, there are literally endless numbers of potential futures which are available to us, because we create the future based on the decisions and what we create in the now, and it becomes the then, <laughs> as it moves into the past. But, you know, we create the future as we live it. But if I've got this right, and I believe I do, there's a prophetic quality to these experiences that I was given, and my job was to get this out there, uh, because if we continue to do business as usual, then the future that I have created in these books with Nainoa, that future is the future we're walking straight into. And so I've had a lot of people write to me from uh, all over the world who've read these books, and they say, you know, the, the vision of the future that you've revealed to us actually seems like an extraordinarily good future. You know, maybe we need to clean the board and, 
and start over again with different priorities because these people who live in the future are quite different from us you know they're not nearly as competitive they're not nearly as hard on each other as we are they're much more spiritually focused uh, they're much more philosophical in their in their worldview and in their understanding of who they are and what they're doing here and what human destiny is all about and i find this deeply reassuring you know, uh, this Kahuna friend of mine, I mentioned him to you while we were chatting informally shortly ago. You know, he, he said to me, you know, what have we got more of than anything else? He asked me that question, and I didn't know what the answer was, and he said, time. Time is what we have more of than anything else. So we're in this for the long run. We're in this for the long run. And this man I know, my once and future self who lives in the future, I think that part of the reason that we were drawn together at this particular time is because everything is unraveling rather rapidly right now. I mean, it's like with, you know, 2012 and the offing and and so forth and so on. It's like, you know, we're coming into the center of the spiral. You know, we're moving in toward the center, and as we approach the center of the spiral, everything is happening more and more quickly. There's a kind of quickening that's going on, and everybody's very much aware of that. So there's a point at which time will briefly stop, right at the point in the center of the spiral, and then it will begin to unravel again. It will begin to wind out from the center of the spiral. And what we create at that time is going to be very important because it's going to form the foundation for the next maybe 26,000-year cycle. I don't really know. You know, this is part of the future which has not been revealed. And you believe that point at the center of the spiral is 2012? It could be. It could be. Um, there's, you know, a, a lot of impetus toward understanding that or toward accepting that point. And this is, I think, very important for us because it helps to focus our awareness on, you know, you know what we've done wrong as well as what we could be. And uh, this shift in consciousness, I think, is what 2012 is all about. You know, the alignment of the galaxy, of the uh, of the axis of the solar system with the cosmic center. This actually happens every year in December, so there's nothing particularly magical about that happening in 2012. But, you know, it's a point of reference, I think, for us to really take stock on, you know, what we've been doing for the last 200 years, especially, or 2000. And, you know, the question is, do we really want to have another 2000 years of applied barbarism, or do we want to step up? Now, Hank, as an evolutionary biologist and as a trained Ph.D. anthropologist, why wouldn't you take the perspective that whatever the visionary dreamlike experience you had, it was human imagination? I mean, that's what our imaginations do. That's how science fiction has been written decade upon decade. Why put this in a different category than a science fiction novel? That's a very good question, and part of the answer comes from my understanding of how the self is put together. This, this was knowledge that I acquired through conversations with a Kohona elder, a man named Hale Makua, who passed about five years ago. This is a man who was, well, he was kind of like the Dalai Lama of Polynesia. He was the big Kohona. Everyone knew who he was. And in my conversations with him, I came to understand something very clearly. Each of us has not one, but three distinct souls. There's the higher self, which is our spiritual soul, our immortal self that does not die. 
there is the lower soul, which is like the subconscious. It's what uh, what Jung called the subconscious and Freud called the id, but it's actually considerably more than that. And then there's a mental soul, the mental soul, which um, Jung called the conscious mind and Freud called ego. And once again, it's more than that. In the Western world, this information was consolidated by the, uh, for the first time by Pythagoras, the Greek physician, uh, philosopher, and mathematician, who was very much aware that we have three principal aspects. He called them the three principias, the mental, the spiritual, and the physical. Now, the creative imagination is sourced by the mental aspect of ourself. It's the creative aspect of ourself. But the visionary experience is not accessed through the ego. It's not accessed through the conscious mind. It's accessed through the subconscious. And the subconscious is not creative. It's incapable of creating anything, but it can send what it perceives, or in the case of the shaman, what it receives. It can send what it receives to the conscious mind, which thinks about, analyzes, and integrates, and makes decisions about it. So the conscious mind is the one that creates separation. <laughs> the conscious mind is the one that creates doubt. But the conscious mind is also the creative aspect of ourselves. And the creative imagination, the ability to create goals and thought forms of things that we'd like to achieve in life, this is a function of the creative mind. But the creative mind doesn't dream, nor does the subconscious dream. I had a long talk with Sandy Ehrman about this by phone not too long ago. And what I came up with in the end was that it's the higher self that actually dreams. The higher self which exists always in the dream world. Because the dream world and the spirit world is essentially the same. The dream world that we go into when we dream at night is one particular layer or level of the spirit world itself. And so despite the fact that a lot of people might have doubts about the existence of a spirit world, we will access it on an ongoing basis um, throughout our dreaming while we're asleep at night, as well as our, our sort of daydreaming at, at, during the day when we're very much awake. So the subconscious mind through which the dream is perceived, all right, it's the connection between the higher self and the subconscious or the body soul. It's this connection which allows the dream or the shamanic vision to come through. That aspect of the self is not creative. It can't make anything up, which means that when you're doing this right, when you're having the authentic visionary experience, you're not creating it. You're perceiving it, and you're perceiving it through this deeper level of the self, which is not well understood in the Western world, even by our psychologists, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So how do you know that everything that's perceived from that part of yourself is true? It might just be a received perception. Or this is what you're saying, it's a possibility. Uh -huh. I've got it. This is why the subtitle of, of Awakening to the Spirit World, which Sandy and I created together, is called The Shamanic Path of Direct Revelation. The shaman doesn't, uh, or the shamanic practitioner, if we use that term instead, the shamanic practitioner does not um, doubt what they're perceiving as created or not real. From the shaman's perspective, dreams are real. In fact, the dream world is the real world, and everything that exists in this physical realm that we inhabit 
uh, for 70 or 80 years of action-packed life on the physical plane. Everything which is manifested into this world is sourced by the dream. In other words, everything that exists here has a dream aspect there. It's like the telephone that I'm talking to you on. Uh, it came into being through the dream world first. It was dreamed. And through the dreaming of the scientist who created this extraordinary device, it was manifested into reality through engineering and, and uh, craftsmanship and, and understanding of all sorts of things. But it existed first in the dream world. So from the shaman's perspective, the dream world is the real world. And the shaman, as the master dreamer, is able to go into the dream world to accomplish various things. Because if you can change, for example, the dream aspect of somebody's illness in the dream, and if you can affect it on the energetic level, it will, you know, its physical manifestation and the physical embodiment of the individual will shift in response. This is very easy to do if you know how to do it. And many people in the transformational community have had the experience of working with shamanic practitioners or energy workers and have received the benefits of that work. And, you know, this is something that in, in Western medicine it's still regarded as as largely uh, wishful thinking or hocus-pocus, except by, you know, well-informed you know informed and gifted individuals. You know, Larry Dossey, for example, knows exactly what we're doing. And, you know, many others do, too. Anyway, this is straying from the the path that you're you're following allow us to return the the question i'm asking is i i've seen shamanic practitioners and i know that they've received perceptions things that they would call direct revelation that have actually just turned out to be plain wrong just wrong about x y or z that was going to happen that just didn't happen uh-huh. what, what do i make of that well there are well this brings us back to something we talked about briefly um, there are a lot of people out there in the shamanic world who think they're doing it or who want to be able to do it or say they're able to do it, but, you know, they, in fact, have a, a tendency to create what it is that they want to experience. For example, years ago, 10 years ago, I was in an advanced training workshop uh, with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, and I made a, a really startling discovery I was drawn into this training program because of my, my experiences, my experiences with Nainoa, and I, I wanted to learn more about this, this practice. I wanted to learn more about the, the world of the shaman itself. And in the workshop itself, there were about 45, 50 people, maybe 45, closer to 45. And after one week there, I was convinced that there were only about seven or eight of us in the room who were really doing it, and all the rest seemed to be creating what it was that they wanted to perceive. This is the great challenge for those who are involved in visionary fieldwork. The great challenge is to know very, very clearly when you're creating the imagery and when you're not. And I believe that my my work as an artist, when I was a grad student at Berkeley uh, in anthropology back in the 70s, I would be doing my science, my hardcore science, during the week, and then I would take one or two afternoons a week, and I would slip across the Bay Bridge to the Art Academy, where I studied painting and sculpture and drawing for about seven years. As a practicing artist, I know very clearly when my creative imagination is involved and when it's not. And this is something I just learned through through direct experience, through doing it. 
So when I'm doing it right, I can perceive very clearly when my own will forces or my own, uh, <laughs> I could put it, ego needs are slipping into the mix. And I can also perceive very clearly when they're not. And I think this is something we learn through training and through doing it. So there are a lot of people who are newcomers to the shaman's world. You know, the shaman's world looks very attractive to them, and they sort of come in as newbies, and they're convinced with great fervor that they're actually doing it. Fervor is, is a, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a critical word because my kahuna friend from the past would say that when we're working as shamans, when we're working as, as spiritual practitioners, we're working in what he called the sixth level. The sixth level is the level of the priest, the priestess, the shaman, the prophet. And at the sixth level, the positive polarity for the priest, the priestess, the shaman, the positive polarity is compassion. The motivating over you know, overarching, motivating field that draws us into the right stuff is the experience of compassion by getting in touch with that heart connection, which is where the doorway is. The negative polarity is zeal, is fervor. And when I encounter, you know, people in workshops who are in zeal, I just kind of listen, and I just kind of let them go as far as they want to go with it, because eventually they learn. They learn through direct experience what's real and what's not. And I think this is a very important uh, a very important point. So part of the work that Sandy Ingerman and I have been doing over the last oh, 25 years or so, almost 30 years, uh, she's been doing it longer than I. In my training programs, I really try to create very highly trained shamanic practitioners who have a very clear perception between what originates in the conscious mind and what arrives in the conscious mind through the subconscious. And this is the critical thing. Mm -hmm. Now, in your book with Sandy that is being published by Sounds True, Awakening to the Spirit World, The Shamanic Path of Direct Revelation, it's really a, a how-to book in many ways. There's lots of practical advice and tips to begin the shamanic journeying process and then different rituals and, and exercises. And you mentioned that you discovered in your own life that you had the DNA to become a shaman, if you will, that, uh -huh. it, was, that it was in you, in your, in your actual biology. So do you think that people who pick up this book, some people will have the DNA, some people won't? That's Pe true. People will be, so what percentage of the population has this DNA? Well, in my experience, now I've been in the game for you know, 28 years now, this is my 28th year in my apprenticeship. In my experience, most of us can do it to some extent, with about half of us being really good at it. Half of us? That's, about half of us. That's a pretty good percentage. This is very much in alignment with fieldwork, which has been done with people like the Kalahari Bushmen of uh, Southern Africa, the Kungsan people, you know, that they have that click in their language, the Kungsan. That's actually like a letter of the alphabet. Now, in a typical hunting-gathering band, traditionally about 50% of the group could shamanize when the need re required it. So this has been my experience in the Western world as well. Of course, the people who come into my workshops, I'm getting a skewed, uh, a skewed number here because they're already interested in, they already, many of them already are visionaries, and they're coming into the workshop to find out what's been going on and to try to refine these these skills that they have. 
But I have found in workshops that about 80% in a beginning workshop can do it to some extent. There are some people who just can't do it. So in creating this book with Sandy, Sandy and I, when we talked it over at Sounds True's invitation to create this this interesting uh, literary endeavor, in creating this book, what we've tried to do is we've tried to give this ancient, mystical, spiritual path an upgrade. We've tried to bring it more into alignment with the mainstream of Western thought, uh, kind of like meditation and yoga. Mm-hmm. You know, 40 years ago, <laughs> you know, nobody was practicing yoga. You know, very few were practicing meditation, but today they're virtually mainstream. Mm-hmm. And what we've really tried to do is bring the ancient path more into alignment with what we, who and what we are as modern people in the Western world. And so, although it's a how-to book, it's considerably more than that. And it goes way beyond all the books on shamanism that I've read, because we have very specific chapters that deal, for example, with death and how to work with the dying, dealing with children, dealing with community, working with light and sound, working with the dream, working with the weather, reconnecting with nature. And that reconnection with nature is is so important because I really feel that in this time of things unraveling and coming apart, that part of the re-raveling and things coming together again will involve a re-enchantment of ourselves. And this involves a re-enchantment of our connection with nature. Because everything in nature is forever true. You can depend on nature forever. Nature never lies. You know, whereas in our world of artifice and technology, everything is constantly changing. So the book itself represents an attempt uh, by the two of us as accomplished shamanic teachers and practitioners to create something that will be of use not only just to shamanic practitioners, but also to reach into the uh, cubicles of Madison Avenue and the boardrooms of Dallas, Texas, and and so forth and so on, to really reveal what's possible uh, for a large number of us you know, because once you get in touch with this inner visionary within ourselves, your whole life can change in a very dramatic way in a very short period of time, and life becomes an incredibly enhanced adventure. Do you think that there are different ways we have to understand the shaman in a 21st century modern context versus the context uh, that you studied as an anthropologist when you were in the Rift Valley. I mean, we're, we're, we're different modern people. Can we take the same practices, the same techniques, and use them without making any adaptations or changes? Well, one of the things that we've written about is we've written about the different ways of accessing expanded states of awareness. Now, some people call them altered states of consciousness, and they, in fact, they are. I prefer the term expanded state of awareness because what we're doing is we're taking our ability to see, to hear, to feel, to touch, uh, to sense, and we're expanding those abilities in a very dramatic way. And this is very easy to do if you know how to do it. It's a learned skill that improves with practice. And although there's a lot of um, material written in the literature about hallucinogens, for example, and psychedelics, that's only one path. And in fact, among the great shamans, of, among the Siberians, for example, you know, where they use the Amanita mushroom as their sort of 
psychic dynamite to enhance their cosmic travels. You know, the really great shamans don't need it. They don't need the mushroom. They don't need the LSD. They don't need the ayahuasca to do this. And in fact, this was one of my great discoveries. I was invited a year and a half ago to go down to Brazil to participate in five ayahuasca ceremonies over a two-week period. And I did so, and one of my great discoveries was that I can go much farther with the drum and the rattle and the, through the vehicle of my own mind and spirit than I can go with the hallucinogen. The hallucinogen was very useful in drawing me into the visual streaming uh, that we think of as the dreaming of nature, but that's very familiar to me. I, mean, I can achieve that without ayahuasca, and I think most people can to some extent. So the great experiment, of course, is to see how many visionaries there are out there in the world at large, because if we can wake up the visionaries among us, the world is going to change, and it's going to change for the better and very quickly. And I think that's a very important thing to do right now. You mentioned this phrase, the transformational community, and, and I wasn't quite sure who you were referring to. Is this a group of people? This is your view of a current, our current situation and practitioners who are uh, dedicated to transformation? What do you mean by that? Well, there is that. And in Awakening to the Spirit World, there's an entire chapter, an entire essay that I wrote on the transformational community. The transformational community is an extraordinary number of people. Um, in my experience, having talked to Paul Ray, for example, who wrote this wonderful book, The Cultural Creatives, 10 years ago, there are probably between 50 and 70 million of people in the United States alone who fall into this category, with well over 100 million in Europe and Britain. These are not small numbers. They, these are people who believe that there's more than one level of reality, for example. There's the everyday reality that we live in and experience on a daily basis, and then there are the dream worlds, the spirit worlds, where the laws of physics and cause and effect don't work in the same way. These are people who understand that they're individuals who are able to learn how to go into these alternate realities, into these spirit worlds, in order to do various things, initially on behalf of themselves, and then increasingly on behalf of members of their communities. These are folks who believe in the existence of spirits, spirit helpers and spirit teachers who are compassionately concerned for us and who are poised to help us in various ways. And through experience, we learn that there is a protocol these spirits are not allowed to mess with us or get involved with our lives unless we invite them to. But when we invite them to, things can change very quickly and for the better. The transformationals are people who understand that there's an underlying field of power, an, uh, a field of power or energy which underlies existence as we know it. And many have experienced connection with this field of power. The transformationals are people who are very uh, environmentally savvy. There are people who are deeply concerned with finding the limits to short-term gain so we can discover the long-term ecological sustainability which is going to be required if our civilization state, indeed, if our species is going to survive. These are people who are more concerned with uh, personal relationships, for example. They're more concerned with the nature of their relationships than they are with personal gain. They're concerned with 
issues of the elderly, issues of children, the issues of women, the issues of minority groups, the issues of the gays. These are people who have a very humanistic perspective on life, and they tend to favor endeavors that are cooperative rather than competitive. In other words, endeavors that favor the many rather than the individual. So these are people in whom I have a great deal of hope. The numbers of these people reveal, and this is uh, demographics, which was derived from Paul Ray's book, The Cultural Creatives, that came out about 10 years ago now. The Institute of Noetic Sciences, I believe, were the ones who published it. Um, the numbers are not small, and they appear to be growing, because more and more people are dropping out of the so-called modernist paradigm, which is failing to solve the problems which is it has created. And at the same time, you have the, the traditionals, you have the fundamentalist type Christians and, and Muslims and Judaic practitioners. You know, a lot of them are, are old now, and they're dropping off the screen, and their children are not as inclined to follow these old-time traditional values as their parents and grandparents were, because they live in a very different world. So it's in the, uh, the existence of this transformational community that I really find hope for the future, because these are people who understand quite clearly that the time has come to create a new cultural mythos in which we redefine who we are, what our priorities are, what we're doing here, and what our personal destiny is as souls who are traveling across eternity. This is the transformational community. Now, Hank, I have a question about one of the aspects of the transformational community that you identified, which is a, an experience, a belief, a conviction that there are spirits and spirit helpers mm -hmm. and that we can work with our spirit helpers. So could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, here you are, scientist, anthropologist. There are spirits and spirit helpers. I can work with them. For somebody who doesn't have a direct experience of that, how can you help them understand what you're talking about? Well, this is one of the reasons that Sandy and I wrote this wonderful book. There is a, a CD in this wonderful book which will help people expand consciousness. The CD essentially records several tracks of rhythmic percussion. This is a form of sonic driving, and it's been understood for a long time that the brain, the human brain, tends to follow these rhythmic percussive beats or shakes of the rattle in this case, in which case it draws the human brain into what are called theta brainwave patterns. Now, theta waves fire at roughly four to seven cycles per second. Um, dreaming, when we're dreaming at night, in delta waves, delta waves are like one to three. They're very slow, regular brain waves. And when we wake up in the morning and we move into a resting, awake and aware state, we're usually in alpha, which fire at roughly 8 to 13 cycles per second. But between alpha and delta are these interesting theta wave states. And that CD in the book is designed to help people achieve these theta brainwave states. Again, this is a learned skill that improves with practice. Now, when you combine the physical stimulus of the sonic driving with a strongly focused intention, in other words, an intention to connect with a helping spirit, or a connection to connect with a spirit teacher in human form. We start paying attention to whatever comes up in our mind in response to this intention accompanied by this physical stimulus. And very quickly, 
I've watched people move into the visionary experience often on the very first attempt. In fact, over the last 28 years, you know, I've been, you know, my inner scientist has been very, very impressed on the, by the fact that very often people will move into this visionary experience in the response to the drum, in response to the rattle, and they'll go on these visionary inner voyages in which they return with accounts that would pass muster at any aboriginal campfire. In other words, any indigenous shaman would understand exactly what these Western people are doing, and yet these are non-tribal people. This is one of the one of the things which has allowed me to make this this statement. You know that I feel that there is a template, a kind of genetic pattern, uh, which all of us possess to a greater or lesser degree, which allows us to access these expanded states of awareness. I think, for example, when we were hunter gatherers. And that was not very long ago. I mean, 10,000 years ago, we were all camping out, right, living as hunting-gathering people. This ability to access these, these states of consciousness is very adaptive because it allowed the hunters to find the animals and to get the animals' permission to hunt them successfully. You know, this was part of what allowed us to survive, possibly over millions of years. So this, this spiritual practice at the center of the shaman's uh, world is essentially this. It's that direct experience of the spirit worlds that defines the mystic, that direct transcendent experience that defines the mystic. And this is the, is the core of what I believe is a new kind of religious complex which is coming into being in our time. This is something we could talk about at some length. <laughs> Well, well, tell me a little bit about what you mean, a new religious complex. You mean a, a, a new way, which is the path of direct revelation, is our future spiritual form? Okay, here we go. You know, if we were to think about the last, let's say, 26,000 years, and we were to think about the great cycle of ages, this is something that Sandy and I have written about in Awakening. There have been four great ages since the beginning of this current cycle, and the first age was probably the late Stone Age. It's this period of time in which the shaman was the religious practitioner and art appears. Art appears all over the world at the same time when it appears. This is quite striking when you think about it. From Australia to Europe to South Africa, when art appears, let's say, 35,000 years ago, you know, it just doesn't begin in one place and then spread out. It appears everywhere at the same time. Now, this art is inevitably uh, regarded as shamanistic by, by uh, most of the investigators who, who observe it carefully and understand what it is. It's about connection with the natural world, about connection with the animals, about connection with the spirits. And this was the first great cycle. Now, at the end of that cycle, we come to the end of the hunting-gathering period, and we move into the Neolithic, to the invention of agriculture, and the establishment of, of towns and villages, the first settled communities. This happens for the very first time, really around eight to 10,000 years ago. And during the second cycle, something very interesting happens. We're not really sure what it is, but we see a great many of these little figurines of pregnant women, all right? Some people have called them Venus figures. Some people have called them great goddess figures. But they appear, and we find a lot of, of images of animals as well. You know, there's no doubt that the shaman was still the religious practitioner, but something is interesting is going on in the spiritual practice of these people. And of course, as the Neolithic comes to a point, 
about 5,000 years ago, we had the establishment of the first large city-states for the first time among the Sumerians, the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, the Hittites, the Egyptians, and so forth and so on. And among them, we have the first state-level societies with the first state-level religions. For the first time, we have gods and goddesses above and beyond the spirits of nature. In other words, as our perspective of ourselves becomes more centralized and stratified, our perception of the supernatural world follows suit. And we begin to see a more stratified uh, spiritual world with high gods and goddesses, you know, in the upper worlds. You know, Zeus and Athena and Hera and Horus and Isis and Osiris. You know, these are beautiful examples of these. Now, that's the third period, the third age in the cycle uh, in which polytheistic religions became the norm. And we have our first organized, bureaucratized priesthoods who ran these stratified religions. At the end of the classical period, with the collapse of Rome, the collapse of Egypt, something very interesting happens. A new religion comes into being. And that new religion, monotheism, in its three basic forms, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, monotheism has been the predominant religious expression for our current cycle of ages, which has lasted for about 2,000 years. Now, in coming to the end of this cycle, all three of those major religions are in decline. Now, we could make exceptions with, with Islam. I don't really understand Islam myself, although I read a great deal about it, and, I, and I've experienced a lot of Islam directly through my living in Ethiopia and Egypt and places like this. But we're living in a time which if history follows itself, and it always does, in which a new religion is going to come into being. And that new spiritual complex has right at its core this direct revelatory experience of the transcendent worlds, which is available to each one of us. In other words, we've come to a point where we really don't need priests and priestesses and priesthoods anymore. We no longer need gurus and, you know, high spiritual mucky mucks telling us what the, what the score is. We're living in a time in which each person can become their own priest, their own priestess, their own prophet, their own guru, receiving their revelations directly from the highest sources themselves. And this is where the shaman's practice uh, will form an incredibly firm foundation on which this new spiritual complex can be built. And we have no idea what it's going to be yet. It doesn't really have any, any formal name yet. It's not, you know, formalized around the central teachings of some central prophetic figure like Mohammed or Jesus or, or the patriarchs like Moses. You know, <laughs> there are millions of us out there who can do this, probably tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions. And we all know that the real spiritual teachers are inside of us. The real spiritual knowledge is within us, not outside of us. And this is going to be a new form, a new form of spiritual practice. And the, the shaman's practice, I think, will form a very firm foundation on which this new spiritual complex can take place. So you believe that we are currently entering this fifth stage, that we're in the process of beginning it? Oh, I think it's been going on for the last 40 years. Yeah, ever since, you know, the work of, of works of Carlos Castaneda and Michael Harner and and others, I mean, 
you know, back in the 60s, you could count the really good uh, number of really good books on shamanism probably on the fingers of one hand. And today, you know, we're loaded uh, with really good books on on shamanic practice and and perception. So, you know, this is obviously a major area of interest in the transformational community, having this experience. Now, Hank, there are so many things I could talk to you about, but what I want to talk to you about are just a couple of topics that we okay. opened that we already touched on that I don't quite feel complete on. And one was this idea of spirit helpers and spirits. What, what do you understand spirits and spirit helpers to be? Meaning, are these beings that are living in a different dimension that we can contact? Are they archetypal forms? What are they? The spirit helpers and spirit teachers. If I've got this right, and I believe I do, the spirit helpers could be called ancient human experiences with whom we've been in relationship for tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of years, and who've been kind of waiting around for the last 2,000 years for us to wake up and make connection with them again. I'm talking about the spirits of nature. I'm talking about the animal spirits and the plant spirits and the elemental spirits, uh, the spirits that form the foundation of the dreaming of nature. Because we came out of that dreaming, whether we believe that or not, human beings came out of nature, and our minds and nature's mind are really one and the same. So when we turn in the direction of these ancient helping spirits, for example, the spirit of wolf, or the spirit of tiger, or the spirit of bear, or the spirit of eagle, or salmon, or redwood tree, or the spirit of the river, the spirit of the ocean, uh, we can connect with the spiritual essence, the archetypal source of these manifested physical forms. And human beings have been doing this for a very long time. That's why I say that humans have been involved with these ancient experiences of nature, these ancient spiritual energetic complexes which make up the dreaming of nature. And these are benevolent. These have been there for us from the beginning. For example, when a, a, a Bushman shaman wants to go out and hunt for eland, they connect with the spirit of the eland to, to get its permission to hunt it. And then usually through, uh, through dialogue and through um, intention, eland spirit will convey to the shamans, all right, I can see that you guys are in great need, you're hungry, your children are crying, there's no milk in their mother's breasts, I will send in three of my eland people uh, for you to kill. But you can only take three, and you can only, uh, you can have to wait for them to come to you. That's usually the way hunting is done. The hunter waits for the game to come to him, or the women who are going out gathering, you know, they will go and connect with the spirit of the plants that they're wanting to gather, and the spirits of those plants, the plants will reveal themselves to them, and the women will be successful in gathering. Now, this doesn't mean that women didn't hunt. They hunted at the smaller end of the scale. You know, but going out and killing elephants with spears, that's very dangerous work, and you don't take women with children along with you on a hunt like that. So that has always sort of fallen to the male half of the world. No worries. You can go do that. You understand. That. Yeah, go ahead, Hank. Go crazy. Yeah. Go spear that elephant. Now, when it came to healing work, all right, the shaman was always the master healer in the imaginal realms 
the imaginal realms, I'm using the word imaginal rather than the word imaginary, because imaginary in our society implies something with, which is not real. Imaginal suggests that there is a parallel reality which exists all around us all the time, in which these imaginal beings are real, and they're very much connected with us, although in our state-level monotheistic religious belief systems we've tended to ignore them, and let's face it, most of our monotheistic traditions demonize nature to a greater or lesser extent over the last 2,000 years. So there's a great separation which was created between ourselves and nature. So the helping spirits tend to be manifestations or aspects of the dreaming of nature who've been in relationship with us for a very long time. The teachers, the teachers tend to be higher level beings. And in my opinion, and this is just my opinion of, of course, I believe that our primary spirit teacher is our own higher self. The higher self is that angelic being that people perceive as a guardian angel or a winged superhuman of some kind. And of course, being etheric beings, etheric meaning energetic, they can pretty much take any form that they wish to come into relationship with one of their embodiments. But there's a great deal of information in the time that we live now about the nature of the higher self. One of the most extraordinary to, to me, you've probably read this as well, is Jane Roberts' Oversoul 7 books, mm -hmm. in which she really laid out who the Oversoul is and what the relationship between the Oversoul and the Spirit Guide is. A lot of people who use the word guide don't use it correctly, in my opinion. A lot of people who are talking about their guides are actually talking about their helping spirits. The guide is a very particular figure of grace, involved in our soul's evolution across time. And I'm talking about our oversoul. The guide is the oversoul's teacher. So we have the oversoul on the one hand, the source of all the information we ever might have need of during our lifetime, who connects with us through the human capacity of what we call intuition or inspiration. Intuition is a function of our higher self. And it's through the level of intuition that we often receive downloads about, you know, things that we really need to know about. But, of course, the choice is always ours to make. The ego, the mental soul, is the chooser, and we can either choose to follow up on this information or this guidance that we've been given or not, you know. And if we choose to follow our intuitions, we, things usually work out fairly well. You know, if we choose not to follow that intuitive guidance, there are usually lessons to be learned. <laughs> And, you know, this seems to be the way in which it works. So these, these transpersonal beings, the teacher really connecting with us from above, and the helping spirits collecting with us through below, you know, these are, you know, authentic human transpersonal experiences which can enormously enhance our lives. And knowing who they are and how to work with them directly is very, very important, is very important, and there's been a lot of separation created uh, between us and these spiritual beings, essentially through our monotheistic traditions. I hate to put it that way because it sounds like I'm demonizing religion. But I think the time has come for an upgrade. And I, this is one of the reasons that Sandra Engerman and I created this wonderful book, Awakening to the Spirit World, because it's really about turning back to who we once were and the process of turning toward who and what we're in the process of becoming. 
Hank, thank you so much for talking with me today. I'd love to have another conversation with you sometime soon. I have a lot more questions. You're <laughs> quite an interesting and tremendously yeah. educated person. So thank you so much for being with us. Hank Wesselman, the co-author with Sandra Ingerman of Awakening to the Spirit World, The Shamanic Path of Direct Revelation. It is a new book from Sounds True that also includes a CD of drumming, which facilitates a shamanic journey and your ability to, for yourself, have a shamanic journey and experience the path of direct revelation. For Sounds True, this is Tammy Simon. Thank you for listening. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey.